0: what we're going to look at here is at the end of Mark chapter 4, a very short recounting of a very epic moment in Jesus's ministry. If you've been a Christian for a number of years, you're familiar with this story, but it may have lost its force. And if you've read it a few times, you can tend to forget just how epic this moment is. And if you're new to exploring Christianity, Um, and exploring Jesus. And you haven't heard this story we're about to read yet. This is the kind of story that raises the question for you. Either Jesus is the Lord, the King, and the Creator of all things, and everyone should trust and follow Him, or the story we're about to read is made up and it's fake. I mean, those are the two options here, because if this story is true, then we can't be neutral about this man, Jesus. Um, We can't just hear this story, close our Bible, and say, what's for lunch? So, this story raises the key question, who is Jesus? And at the end of the story, that's the question the disciples who were with him are asking. Who then is this? They're wondering who in the world they are dealing with here. They've started following this man, Jesus, but they really don't get it yet. And they're watching him, and this is a decisive moment in their life where they realize, who in the world are we dealing with here? This is not what we were even expecting to this point. So, as we read this from the Gospel of Mark, let's bracket our familiarity. Let's slow down and be resurprised. Mark chapter 4 Beginning there, verse 35. Here's God's word to us by the Spirit. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, his disciples, Let us go across to the other side, the other side of this sea. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were there with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. And, Father, we pray that you would transform us through hearing and reflecting on this together. Open our eyes to behold the wonder of your Son, Jesus, and wholeheartedly follow Him. We pray this in the Spirit. Amen. Well, in Mark's Gospel, we have so far seen Jesus announce that the kingdom is here, and then He's demonstrated its presence, its reality, its power through all sorts of miracles, He's done a number of things, but now in a stretch through Mark's gospel, right here at the end of chapter 4 and in the next several stories, Mark's going to give us a series of four big miracles that Jesus does that show His power over various aspects of the world, over nature, over sickness, over uh, death itself, and over demons. And so, this is the first of these four stories. So, this shows Jesus' power over nature. So, the point here of this story is, is this. Mark is showing us that Jesus is the Lord of creation, and He cares for us. So, we can trust Him in any trial. We don't need to be afraid. So, the disciples are in a crisis here, and in this crisis, Mark is drawing our attention to a few key questions asked through this story. So, there's really three main questions. They're three of the most relevant questions that need to be asked in any crisis of life. So, let's just walk through this story and then circle back to each of the three questions that are raised in the story. So, verse 35, the very beginning, you can read again with me. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. So, this is the same day that was described earlier in chapter 4, as we've been looking at if you've been with us for the past couple Sundays, where Jesus is On the the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, He's off a bit in a boat teaching to a big crowd of people on the shoreline, and now it's evening, so it's getting late, the day's over, it's getting dark, and Jesus says to the disciples, let's go to the other side of the sea, the Sea of Galilee. So, they were on the western side, and at this point, so they're going to cross over to the east side, probably an eight-mile journey verse 36 says in leaving the crowd they took with them or they took him with them in the boat just as he was and other boats were with him so mark says they left the shoreline and the boat that they probably would have had at this time would have fit probably all the disciples those closest to jesus in 1986 um, a fishing boat was recovered dated back to about this time that would have been typical for the time. And it was about 27 feet long and eight feet wide. It'd have room for about 15 people in it. So this is bigger than a fishing boat you might typically think of. It's fairly large. And so Mark says also, not only is this boat there, but there's other boats with them. So maybe others are tagging along. It's a fairly random detail other boats. I mean, if you're familiar with this story, you probably didn't even realize that. Oh, there's other boats actually around here as well. You forget about it because it's random. It doesn't help the narrative at all. We have no idea who they are or what ended up happening to them. There's other boats around. So why mention them? Well, the most plausible answer, uh, again, I mean, we're looking at a random detail. It's really important, though, to slow down and ask why why would this be included? Well, the most plausible answer is maybe obvious, but it's really significant. Mark mentions details like this in a lot of his stories simply because he's describing what actually happened. Uh, This little story is filled with details that don't seem to matter if you're just kind of crafting a compelling story. Details like the fact that, you know, it was evening, and they started to head out, and they took Jesus, Mark says, as He was, so, they didn't go back to the shore. It seems they just kind of took Jesus. He was already in the boat and they just left. And now we hear there's other boats, and then we'll see in a moment that Jesus is asleep on a cushion. Why mention the cushion? So, this is the way that an eyewitness would tell the story. And there's a good reasons to believe that Mark, who wrote this story, is getting his information from Peter, a follower of Jesus who was there. A New Testament scholar named Richard Bauckham wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and he's, he makes the case that the Gospels are based on eyewitness accounts. They weren't written way after the fact by people who were completely disconnected from the ministry of Jesus. And one of the features that he says marks eyewitness testimony is what he calls irrelevant detail, like this. And so, Richard Baucom even draws attention to Mark's mention here in this story of other boats. It's the kind of irrelevant detail that an eyewitness would throw in there, not really that relevant to the narrative. So, here's why that's important. It shows that Mark is not writing a myth or a legend. It's not the kind of literature that this is. He's reporting history. He's including details like extra boats and seat cushions because it's part of eyewitness testimony. And this is important for a story like this, because we can so quickly want to turn this story into kind of a metaphor for the storms of life. Um, and this is also just kind of epic and huge, this big miracle. We can doubt, I mean, is this really for real? Did this really happen? And this is relevant to all our, sti- our, all our trials and what we might call the storms in our lives. But we need to see that this is not written just to be an inspiring make-believe legend. Mark is reporting real history. So if this is just a legend, then we can find some inspiration perhaps from this uh, for a few hours. But if this is real history, if Jesus really did come and really did do this, then this can change our lives. So the boats are headed out at night, and then a deadly storm Arose. Verse 37, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. The Sea of Galilee was famous for these kinds of storms. The sea was surrounded by some uh, smaller mountainous uh, hills. Cold air from the mountains would come, meet the warm air from the sea, and create these crazy storms, would have come often with hardly a warning, and they were sometimes hurricane like. So, this wind is powerful. I remember uh, being downtown Chicago one time, and sometimes the the wind, called the Windy City, right, the wind could be so powerful. I remember walking along the edge of a building, and it was near the shoreline, and apparently just some wind was just tearing through some corridor, and it was coming this way. And so, I'm like walking along the edge of this building, and then I come around the corner out into the open, and it almost got knocked over. Just powerful wind, and that's nothing like what they're experiencing here. I mean, have you seen the deadliest catch, right? Just terrible, frightening storms. And so, I want to stop here and make an observation together. Did this terrible, life-threatening storm, this trial in the disciples' lives, happen because they were disobedient to Jesus? No. It may seem obvious. Uh, but they were obeying him. He's the one who said to cross over the sea they're following Jesus, they're doing exactly what Jesus said to do, and then they face incredible hardship and trial. This just happens. So, here's why we need to see that, because when terrible things happen in our lives, we can tend to think, what did I do wrong? Is it because of my sin? Is God angry with me? Or, if we know that we're being faithful to Him, we can start to think, wait, why is this happening? I'm actually finally getting my life together. I'm following Jesus. I'm being faithful, and I feel like life is harder now for me. What in the world's going on? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever asked that question? Sacrificing for God, serving His people, and my life's getting harder. Those kinds of questions arise because deep inside of of us, we assume that if we obey God… Uh, He'll give us a good life. Smooth life. But He doesn't. That's not how life works. That's not how God works. God does not promise smooth sailing for obedience. There's no health and wealth, prosperity gospel message here that says that if you obey God, your problems will go away. So, the storm, I mean, we just need to notice that because very often, actually, what Jesus promises is if you follow Me, life will get harder. You're going to have a whole new kind of persecution that enters into your life. You're going to be more aware of your sin. Your your battle is going to be even harder to fight. It's going to be hard. Okay, so the storm comes. They're afraid that they'll sink. And what is Jesus doing? He's taking a nap. Verse 38, he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. I mean, what a picture. What's going on there? Why is he sleeping? it doesn't say, but we can probably make a good guess, he had a long, hard day. He spent the day teaching crowds. Teaching is tiring. If I ever have to teach multiple times in a day, I'm often exhausted. So, this is one of the greatest glimpses of Jesus's true humanity. Asleep in the boat, the eternal Son of God became a human being, born to Mary, and he took naps. Because he got tired. It also shows his trust in God the Father. There's a theme in the Psalms of um, having a non anxious uh, heart when we're trusting the Lord and we can put our head down on the pillow and sleep. Don't you often feel that when you're most anxious in life, you have the hardest time sleeping? And as we trust the Lord that He's with us and He'll care for us, we actually can get better sleep. It could be tapping into that theme of the Psalms where here's a man who's trusting the Father. So, Jesus is sleeping, and when the storm comes, he's still sleeping while everyone else is freaking out. So, what do they do? Verse 38 they wake him up and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care? It's not clear what they expect him to do because they're going to be shocked by what he actually does, but they're at least expecting him to care. I mean, he's their leader, he's the one who said, Let's go across, and if they're about to die, Does he not even care? I mean, at least kind of get a plan together to start bailing this stuff out or have a plan if the boat sinks. So they ask this question, and it's a good question, and it's the question that gets at the heart of Jesus. Does he care? And Jesus doesn't answer it directly here, but look what he does. And here's the moment that changes everything. This is the climax of the story. Verse 39 says, He awoke and he rebuked. The wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, or be silent and be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Notice it doesn't simply say he woke up and he calmed the sea, but he rebuked the wind. He commanded the storm. And the wind and the waves respond to him like a soldier will get called to attention by a superior. I love reading through the Bible in the evening with my boys, and we've probably read through the Gospel of Mark more than any other book of the Bible. We just go through a lot of the narrative stories of the Old and New Testament, and the Mark's kind of the, the shortest, uh, most easy to understand on the surface of the Gospel. So we read it, and this story has found its way into my normal bedtime routine with uh, one of my sons. So he's got a blanket that actually has blue, and it kind of looks like, looks like waves. So I don't remember what Night first started. We were probably one of the times reading through Mark and got to this story, so I'll often now grab his blanket and just start waving it like crazy over him. And then at some point, he just, whenever he wants to, he just says, peace! And it just floats down over him. (laughs) All calm, tucked in, all is well, at his command. That's what we see here. And then he turns... And he says to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What an interesting question. I mean, of course they trusted him at some level, right? They're in his inner circle. They've seen him do miracles. He's explained parables to him. They're continuing to follow him. But this crisis in the storm exposed just how small their faith was, just how little they had. They didn't yet really fully know who Jesus was, who they were dealing with. They were learning. And so, when the storm came, they were… their little faith was exposed. Their lack of understanding just who Jesus was and their trust in Him was exposed. They didn't know what to do. They didn't realize exactly who it was that was in the boat with them. They certainly didn't expect him to speak the storm into submission instantly like that. They expected them him to, you know, help them endure the storm in some sense or at least care. They didn't expect him to control it, and so they stand there astounded that this happened. Their categories are blown, and here's something I, I didn't notice or had forgotten until this past week. They were terrified by the storm, right? I mean, they're freaking out after it. And then after Jesus calms the storm, what would we expect? We'd expect when the storm's calm, their hearts are calm, right? Everything's fine. But look at verse 41. It says they became even more afraid. And they were filled with great fear. So they weren't just afraid. They had great fear. They didn't just have great fear. They were filled with great fear. And they said to one another... Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So they were afraid of the storm to the point of fearing for their lives. But this language here indicates that they became even more afraid once Jesus calmed the storm. The storm scared them, but Jesus scared them even more. Why? Because they were realizing they had no idea just who it was they're dealing with. Nothing like this has ever been done in human history. A man speaking to a raging storm and speaking it into submission, if he could control nature, what could he not do? And so they say, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? So, this story leaves us with the questions that are asked actually in the story lingering with us. These three questions, who is Jesus? Does he care? And why are you so afraid? So let's reflect on each one of them. Let's start with that one at the end of the story. Who then is this? Who is Jesus? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, look at Jesus in this story, The first glimpse we get of him is a very human glimpse, sleeping on a cushion in a boat, truly human. And yet, he then stands up and controls creation with a word, doing what only God can do. And that's the point here. Uh, These disciples were Jewish, they knew their Old Testaments well. In the Old Testament, the sea represents chaos. It seems uncontrollable, chaotic, mysterious, and yet throughout the Old Testament, we see God controlling it. At the very beginning, God creates this wonder world, which is a sea in darkness. Then He speaks, let there be light, and there is light, and He gives order to creation. And then listen to the Psalms. Here's Psalm 65, verse 7. "'Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves?' so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. Speaking of God, who stills the raging sea? God alone. Psalm 89, 9. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And Psalm 107 is striking. God commands a storm to come over the sea. The people cry out to Him. And then he calms it. So here's Psalm 107, beginning in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. So these people are on a boat out at sea. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind. So God commands and he raises the wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. The men, these people in the boat, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men who were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. It's God alone. And so, who is this man, Jesus, who just woke up from a nap? He is God. He's the God who rules all things. When you read through the Gospels looking for statements that show the divinity of Jesus, there will be few places, Gospels and New Testament, where it's explicit. But on nearly every page, it's right there. Uh, If you notice what the Old Testament was explicit, Was teaching the people to expect, and then what Jesus came to do. He's doing what God alone can do. And you notice his actions here. So Jesus is not like any other religious leader or movement leader this world has ever known. Buddha didn't do this. Confucius didn't do this. Muhammad didn't do this. No Old Testament prophets, no New Testament apostles. Nobody has done this. No one can do this. Jesus did what God alone can do because he's not just a messenger from God. He is God in the flesh, and Jesus has come with a purpose. He announced that his kingdom is at hand, and so he is the king of creation. He has all authority. His kingdom rules over all, and he's giving a glimpse in all of his miracles. He's not just proving that he's God. He's also giving a glimpse of the world he's coming to make new. There will be a world that comes in when Jesus returns and makes all things new, a world when hurricanes are no more, raging seas are no more, death and disease is no more, no more landslides wiping through remote villages, no more tornadoes sweeping through Midwest towns, no more hurricanes destroying coastal cities, Jesus will one day say over all creation, finally and forever, peace, be still. And he's giving a foretaste of that right now. He's doing that with all of his miracles. And so Jesus is the one who now rules the sea and all things. He's not changed. The resurrected and reigning Lord is in control right now. He's not lost his power or authority. Jesus can say to any disaster at any moment, this is an implication of this story. He can say to any disaster at any moment, peace, Be still. And it will obey. So, is this the Jesus you know and trust? Now, here's the truth this kind of power can be terrifying. Because we experience so many hardships and trials. And it's not a comfort to know that Jesus has the power to do this unless we also know the answer to another question, which is does he care? because anyone with this kind of power is terrifying unless you are convinced that you can trust his heart. So, that's the second question. Does he care? The disciples ask it in verse 38. That's what they're wondering. Do you not care that we're perishing? So, they're freaking out, but it's a legitimate question, and it resonates deeply with me. This is the question we ask God in our crises, isn't it? Maybe you've asked him that before. You're suffering. You look to heaven, and you think, do you care? this has gone on for so long. Have you forgotten me? Are you overlooking me? Do you care that I'm going to die? And Jesus doesn't answer the question here with words, He answers it with His actions. He stands up and He stills the storm, He rescues them, but He doesn't always do this for us immediately. So, we may wonder, is He angry? Is He Forgetting me? Does he care? And so, how does he answer this question? Well, he answers it most decisively with his actions again. And it's at the cross. Jesus calmed the storm for the disciples, but he was heading into his own storm. And they were not yet even aware of this. It was the storm of God's eternal wrath that he would be thrown into on the cross, the storm that every one of us deserves. be thrown into because of our sin it's God's just judgment for our sinful neglect of him rejection of him loving his creation more than him idolatry and Jesus came not just to still the storms but to endure for us the eternal storm of God's wrath that should be coming for all of us if justice was the only word but he comes in mercy to do that for us. On the cross, there was a substitution. Jesus stood in our place. He was substituted for us. He took our storm so that we do not have to. And so at the cross then, we see that we can trust his heart. The, the king that rules all things is the king that did that for you and me. He's the one who endures that for us. The cross shows us that we can trust him. He has wise purposes In all that He does, He may not calm the storm, literal storms and disasters, or even the metaphorical storms of your life, other trials immediately, but He can speak calm into your heart because He's the one who is in control, and He took our storm. So, one day, He'll remove all storms. He'll remove every physical storm. He'll speak peace to all the chaos of creation, and He will calm every trial from our lives, And so, here's what Tim Keller says, if you have, I think this is so helpful, if you have a God great enough and powerful enough to be mad at because He doesn't stop your suffering, you also have a God who's great enough and powerful enough to have reasons you don't understand, right? And what we see here is we have a God who cares for us enough to endure hell on the cross for us, which means He doesn't just have reasons we don't understand. He has good purposes uh, that we may not know right now, but we can trust Him. So, we don't miss Jesus' answer to this question. We need to see, do you care is the question, and His answer is decisively at the cross, yes. Sometimes He will show His love for you by keeping you from some trial So many things could happen to us that we have no idea because He just keeps it from happening. Um, Other times He may love you by allowing you to suffer and then removing it from you. Other times He may love you by allowing suffering to come for greater mysterious purposes that you won't yet know. But we can always know His heart's kind and a new creation's coming. Okay, so last question then. This is now the question Jesus asked of His disciples, and it's the question for all of us why are you so afraid? Why are you f- so afraid? Jesus is contrasting fear and faith here. He says, why are you so afraid? Do you not yet believe? Do you still not believe? So, fear and faith are contrast. He's implying that if we are anxious, it's because we lack faith. Or put a different way, if we trusted Him in those kinds of situations, we wouldn't be afraid so many of us feel anxious. I, I often do. It's a mark of our culture right now. So many of us so often feel so anxious, and there's a lot of reasons for it. And sometimes our own brain chemistry is a factor, and medication uh, can be a great help. But it's also true that Jesus can help us in our anxieties. I know for me, my anxiety is often tied to this just sense of uncertainty about the future. I don't know how things are going to unfold, and I wonder if they're going to unfold well or not. I'm fearful that things won't go well, and I'm headed toward this kind of just dark, clouded horizon, and then I'm nervous about it because I'm then wanting to rely on myself to try to figure out what I need to do to make it better. Uh, So, my mind's spinning in bed. Can't get to sleep or wake up early. It's on my mind. But here's what Jesus is saying. I control creation, and I care for you So, why are you so afraid? You can trust me. You may not know your future, but I do, he says. And you may not know how it will turn out, but I do, because I'm in control, and I care for you. So, trust me. I feel like very often, I just, my mind and heart can kind of toggle back and forth between anxiety and trust. I wake up anxious about something, my mind's racing, I'm nervous about how something will unfold, either near future or long term, and then I need to realize I have to flip the switch. And so, I've learned just to kind of toggle back to either being anxious and stressed about the day or about, you know, trusting the Lord, and I can't, I'm can't. i having a hard time trusting it'll work out well, or I can flip over to a mindset that basically is, okay, Drew, why don't you trust the Lord and enjoy the ride, right? Like, He's in control. He's brought you this far. He'll bring you there again. And so, I just then wake up the next day. Mind's kind of spinning, anxious, dark cloud, uncertain. What can I do to help make this better? Then flip back over to, no, Drew, trust the Lord and enjoy the ride, or at least endure the ride. He's in control, and He cares for you. It'll be an adventure, but you can trust Him. So, now you may think, well, I already know that Jesus is in control, and I already know He cares for me. I'm not learning anything new in this sermon. Well, I don't doubt that, and um, maybe you're thinking, I believe this stuff. I just still get stressed out all the time about things anyway. So, here's what I'd encourage you to do, to realize that there is a difference between kind of intellectual, theoretical belief in our heads and functional belief that drops down into our hearts, we can believe in our heads that Jesus rules our lives and that He cares for us, but it may not touch our hearts. We may not actually be, moment by moment, relying on Him. That's what trust is, reliance, right? Relying on Him, banking on Him, resting our whole self on Him for our future. And so, the truth is that our faith can rise and fall in degrees. I mean, I feel like most of the time I'm trusting it like 30%. Or sometimes when it's like 100 or feels like 100 fully trusting him, it's like in a 10-second burst, you know, and then it, then it pulls back. And so, here's the reminder for all of us. Whenever we face anxiety, whenever we're fearful, it is a doorway into deeper faith. It is an opportunity to trust the Lord. So, let your emotions be just like an alarm, alarm for you or just a wake-up call to say, okay, something's going on in me what am I fearful of? And this is an opportunity for me. So, don't berate yourself or beat yourself up or feel ashamed there. Just use that as an opportunity to say, okay, this is a moment when I, I can learn to trust the Lord. So, what do I need to remember of Him? That he, He's in control, He cares for me. Let's trust Him then. So, when you're anxious, uh, turn to Him in fresh reliance. So, here's what this short, powerful short story shows us. This isn't a legend, It's real history, and if this is the real Jesus, then that changes everything. Means that the answer to three questions, these three questions matters to every one of us. Who is he? He is Jesus, the real Jesus. Truly human, truly God, and he controls the wind and the waves, and he controls creation. Second question, does he care? Yes. He's proven it at the cross, so never let the cross be moved out of your vision when you're in the midst of suffering? And last question, then, why are you afraid? If this is really who He is, and if He really does care for you, and this story isn't just made up, then why are you so afraid? Hear Jesus asking that question. Why are you so afraid? Trust me. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for your care for us through jesus and lord jesus we thank you for being the ruler of creation and showing your heart and the father's heart uh, through the cross and holy spirit we pray that you would uh, work in our hearts moment by moment to lead us to true and deeper faith every day each morning moment by moment through the day. Amen.